Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina has hundreds of pet food recipes that are made without artificial flavors or preservatives and is striving for 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2025 so that they can help make the world a better place. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 22nd. Today, the future of unemployment benefits, the rollback of a key environmental law, and a potential kink in the vaccine supply chain. So I've been noticing that over the past couple of weeks, you have been tweeting a lot about Reddit and stuff that you've been reading on Reddit. Tell me more about that. So a few weeks ago, I noticed that people who have been on the federal unemployment program that approved hundreds of billions of dollars in emergency aid for people who had lost their jobs have been taking their stories online and sharing how important these benefits have been to them. The, the stories that you can see on this Reddit page are unemployment, are a really unvarnished and, quite frankly, amazing look at how important this federal emergency uh, unemployment benefit has been to thousands, if not millions of people across the country. One of the things that I love about the forum is after someone posts, you know, I finally got through, I waited months and I finally got my benefits. Hold on. Everyone in the comment section, including people who are still waiting, will say, congratulations, that's great for you. I hope my day comes sometime soon. My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. And and yet it's clear that the unemployment that exists is still not enough for a lot of people who are really struggling right now. I mean, we've seen people who are waiting in interminable lines to try to just get through and get on unemployment and get some help. You know, what has been the most frustrating thing about all of this for you? Not being able to get through on telephone lines. They're just shut off. You had flooded with 400,000 people and they couldn't handle it. And they don't have the people to take care of it. But you just roll with the punches because I'm not the only one in this situation. We've seen people throughout the country struggle to get through and get their unemployment benefits. But our colleague Annie Gowan went to Oklahoma, where the problem is particularly acute. And people were not just waiting for unemployment benefits by calling in. They were actually camping outside of the unemployment offices. To get to unemployment is hard because we can't communicate with them. Sleeping there to try to get their benefits. I sold my home on closing in two and a half weeks for the cash. I mean, I need this. I need it. And I mean, I've never been one to do unemployment, but with all that's going on, I don't really have any other option. So this this federal unemployment money that has been helping a lot of people around the country, it is set to expire at the end of this month. We talked to Erica Werner, one of our colleagues, a few weeks ago, just as Congress was restarting the conversation around whether or not to extend these benefits and whether or not to pass another stimulus plan. Where are we at now in terms of any action from Congress? Right now, the Republicans are dealing with 
a lot of dissension among their own ranks. Congress has not started bipartisan negotiations on a stimulus package for the simple reason that the Republicans have not come forward with a unified proposal that they can negotiate with. But interestingly, there is a bit of unity and actually quite a bit of unity among Republicans on this unemployment benefit that it's too big and has to be reduced. And just yesterday, President Trump at a White House press briefing confirmed what I've been hearing for some time, which is that Republicans are eyeing taking down the benefit of currently 600 additional dollars per week to somewhere closer to 200 per week. And what did President Trump say about his argument for doing that? The president reiterated um, longstanding conservative objections to large federal unemployment. Uh, We want to have people go back and want to go back to work as opposed to be sort of forced into a position where they're making more money than they expected to make and the employers are having a hard time getting them back to work. Advisors that he's spoken to and advisors I've spoken to to the president say that the unemployment benefit incentivizes people to be unemployed. It pays them more to stay at home. They're thinking about doing 70% of the amount. The amount would be the same, but doing it in a little bit smaller initial amounts so that people are going to want to go back to work as opposed to making so much money that they really don't have to. There's a sort of clean and kind of too narrow, in my opinion, partisan debate on Capitol Hill where you have Democrats saying, In fact, these unemployment benefits are not discouraging people from going back to work. Let's extend them. And you have Republicans arguing against extending them by saying these are encouraging people to stay home. They're bad for for the labor market. And what I think you see on the Reddit page is that there's a bit of mistruth to both positions, not to be falsely uh, equivalent here. But what people on the Reddit page are saying is that the unemployment benefits are encouraging me to stay home. And that's a good thing that I like staying home. I like being paid to be able to take care of myself for the first time in my life. I also think it's worth pointing out that people like being able to stay home and not go to jobs where their health will be in danger, right? That like, yes, some people are being offered back jobs and choosing not to go. But in many cases, it's because they are afraid of getting sick. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a key point. I think one important thing to keep in mind in, in the overall context of the unemployment insurance fight is that OSHA, the federal OSHA department, has not issued mandatory guidelines that are criminally sanctionable for employers who do not um, follow safety protocols. The Trump administration has really given businesses and employers extremely wide latitude to implement their own safety procedures. And that means that people are potentially going back to unsafe environments. That has been argued that if you're going to cut unemployment benefits and force people back to work, you should also make it federally a criminal offense to have a workplace that's not safe for these workers who are being required to go back. So as lawmakers are trying to figure out what to do on potential stimulus money, you said that there are some disagreements within Republicans about what they actually want. What are those disagreements? Right now, the biggest source of tension among Republican lawmakers is how much money to spend. A lot of Republicans, a lot of leading Republicans, both in the administration and in Congress, were elected and conceived of themselves as deficit hawks, people who oppose big government spending, people who are wary about the expanding size of the federal government. And on the other hand, you have people in Republican Party circles, particularly political strategists, who say, if the economy is this bad in November and you do not approve more 
federal stimulus, we are going to lose, we are going to lose the Senate and we are going to lose the White House. And so as part of that, you see a lot of wrangling over the size of this bill. And right now, that's manifesting a lot of debate over specific provisions. A lot of Republican senators are opposed to plans to expand state aid, even though states and localities have been hemorrhaging money and losing sales tax revenue due to the decline in business. You're also seeing a big debate over the payroll tax cut. President Trump has been very adamant that um, and suggested that he would veto any bill that does not include a payroll tax cut. Right now, businesses pay taxes that fund Social Security and Medicare. Those taxes are collected both from the employer and the employee. So if these payroll tax cuts were to pass, they would potentially be helpful to people who are working and allow them to take home more of their actual paycheck. But it doesn't sound like that would be helpful to people who cannot find work right now. Yeah, that's been the main Democratic objection, that this does nothing for the unemployed. But to give Republicans some due, a payroll tax cut was approved by the Obama administration and celebrated as a huge win for workers. I think it's pretty clear that you know this would offer at least some substantial part-time relief for, for some workers. Um, but the question is, in part, you know, can they do it in time? Um, Republicans are trying to get the economy stabilized by November. It takes time to implement a payroll tax cut because it requires employees to change their withholdings. It requires companies to change employees' withholdings. On the other hand, Republicans and Mitch McConnell have said that they're going to send another round of $1,200 stimulus payments. Those are something that people really feel that they can see the tangible benefits. I just got a $1,200 check in the mail. So that sort of cuts the other way. And it is sort of the the main counter proposal to the payroll tax cut. And is there going to be any money in this potential stimulus package for things that would actually help contain coronavirus, things like testing or contact tracing? Over the weekend, my colleague Erica Warner and I reported that the Trump administration had moved to block money for CDC and contact tracing uh, in the next stimulus package. The White House's explanation that they gave us was effectively that Congress already approved money that has not been used by the states for testing or for the CD and the CDC has money that's been approved that has not been used. So their argument goes, why do we need to approve more money if the money that's already been approved has not been used? Many of the experts I talked to have dismissed this argument and said, just because the Trump administration has not done an effective job quickly dispersing this money does not mean that there isn't a need for them to both disperse that existing money and to approve more. And really, Trump himself has dismissed testing and argued that it's not effective, that it sort of increases the number of cases artificially, when most experts we talk to say that it's absolutely essential for businesses to reopen and for us to get this virus under control. Uh, We've learned in the last few days that Republican senators are upset that the White House doesn't want more money for testing, and they've signaled that the White House has begun to back off their resistance to this money, and we ultimately expect that that money will be approved in the final package. So it seems like there is still a lot that is up in the air right now. And it's July 22nd. A lot of these benefits expire at the end of this month. How likely is it that something is actually going to be passed within the next week? Or are we looking at a situation where some things will expire before Congress can pass new benefits and that people will be kind of left in the lurch during this window without any help? Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said yesterday um, that he wanted to pass the bill by the end of this week. 
And a little later in the day, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's writing the bill, was asked about this comment. He actually laughed and said no, that he didn't think that was possible. And so, you know, never say never. But I would say we are almost certainly going over this cliff where millions of people will see their unemployment benefits expire. And whether Congress can get something done in the few weeks after that is really anyone's guess. I think you know, if they do get something done, it might be with all Democratic votes and a handful of Republican votes uh, and signed by the president. But the Republican revolt here cannot be overstated. Republicans are very wary about spending more money and they could sink this whole package. As Congress looks more and more likely to be unable to extend these benefits before they expire, it's really worth keeping in mind the stories of people on these Reddit pages who are desperate to have um, just a little bit more time before they are forced to go back to work or are unable to go back to work and are looking at being evicted, looking at struggling to pay their groceries. We had to call um, you know, our major creditors and we were given three months leeway, but this is the month that they all come due that will ripple, you know, across the country and in places like Oklahoma. All of the tech agencies that went to apply, um, I still have no answer for them. No luck yet. I have debt collectors calling me every day now, which for the last couple of months I've been fine, but now I'm down to nothing and you're just leaving me hanging. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. The voices you heard from Oklahoma were gathered by photographer Nick Oxford. The president has just announced that he's finalizing rules that will change the way the federal government applies the National Environmental Policy Act, which is an extremely important 50-year-old law that most people haven't heard of. It essentially requires the federal government to analyze the impact of any significant decision on the environment and take public comment and disclose what could happen if, say, a permit is granted to a pipeline or a coal mine is allowed to go forward, things like that. My name is Juliet Eilprin. I'm a senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post covering energy and environmental policy. So what do you mean when you say that that this law is being changed significantly? The White House has rewritten the way federal officials are going to apply the kind of reviews that are required under the law so that when they're gauging what the environmental impact is of a new project that the federal government may allow to go forward, they're not going to give the public as much time to comment, which has a huge impact on, say, communities of color and poor communities that Mm. are often directly affected by these projects. And they're going to limit what kind of activities are going to be reviewed and what will be the climate impact of those projects. And why are they doing this and why are they doing this now? The law has come under criticism for decades for doing such exhaustive reviews that it's delayed the construction of highways, pipelines, and other critical infrastructure. And so the president, along with the coalition, particularly in the business community and with some allies in the building trades union, 
are saying that by streamlining the way that this law is applied, you're going to be able to overhaul aging infrastructure in the United States and ultimately help restart the economy. So it sounds like this change is really in line with a lot of what we've seen from the Trump administration over the past three and a half years, where they have overhauled or changed uh, rules or environmental policies, especially those that were put in or strengthened by President Obama. So now that we are pretty close to the election, where are we in terms of the scope of change that has happened under Trump? Well, we certainly have seen a a significant change to the rules that govern, you know, everything from oil and gas drilling to power plants to how efficient are the cars and trucks that we all drive. So certainly what we've seen is a huge rollback in terms of a number of of these requirements. Now, you know, there are different stages in the process. When you look at what's just happened with the National Environmental Policy Act, that's something that's taking effect immediately and, again, could really have an impact on a bunch of different projects. There are other rules that have been finalized, for example, right at the early stage of the pandemic in March. What happened is that the Trump administration weakened gas mileage standards for cars and light trucks, which Mm. was a signature policy under Barack Obama, which had huge climate implications. So some of those are really, you know, significant and are already rippling across the country and the economy. Then you have other initiatives that have been blocked in court. And for example, there have been recent setbacks that the administration has faced, whether it's in terms of trying to push to get pipelines constructed or to loosen rules for whether oil and gas companies have to capture the greenhouse gas methane that's leaking from their wells. And so because there's been a really concerted legal effort to block a number of these initiatives, some are still suspended at this point. And is there a push from the Trump administration to get some of these changes in place before the election? Absolutely. So, you know, you've seen certainly a flurry of, say, executive orders during the pandemic where the president is really, you know, instructing his agencies not to be as strict in how they enforce environmental regulations. And so that's something where, again, they're kind of seeking an immediate impact. But there's also the administration is very aware of the fact that both the first term is coming to an end and that there's something called the Congressional Review Act, which is some of the last decisions that one finalizes in the administration can potentially be overturned turned if you have the other party in control of both the legislative and the executive branch. And so Mm -hmm. there's a huge incentive to finish these rules and finalize decisions as soon as possible so they won't be subject to the same sort of reversals that actually the Republicans were able to accomplish right after President Trump came to power and the Republicans controlled both the House and Senate. So the idea is that if you race to get these things through now, that that there is a better chance that they can be more permanent into the future. But but is there also an aspect of it that it's just going into an election that these are the kinds of policies and changes that conservatives would want to see or people who are concerned that too many of these regulations have been stringent on business? 
Yes, there's certainly a messaging aspect to this. I mean, for example, the president himself feels very strongly about infrastructure. There have been multiple infrastructure reeks announced by the White House. And so, for example, when we saw what just happened with the National Environmental Policy Act, that's something that they were trumpeting in the context of showing the country on the move and going forward. Uh, You also see, for example, when it comes to coal miners, that's a constituency that the president cares very strongly about. And so you've had policies that have been aimed at boosting coal production, even though that certainly is not in as strong a position in the U.S. as it has been in recent years. But so when he does things like roll back standards that would have put coal plants out of business that were adopted under the Obama administration, that is absolutely delivering on a policy priority for an important constituency for the president. Has there been a lot of pushback against these policies? There absolutely has been, and it's been from a combination of groups. You know, certainly you've had, you know, environmentalists are frequent opponents of the president, although, you know, as we've noticed that as we're, this country is in the midst of a discussion about what's happened to Americans of color, indigenous Americans, there has really been a vocal outcry from some of these groups that they're the ones who are often bearing uh, the pollution burden that comes from some of these decisions. And so you see them going to the court and they've had some recent, you know, successes. There was a decision this spring that basically halted the Keystone XL pipeline, which the president vowed within days of taking office that he was going to make this happen. There was a, a court decision that actually has just been stayed, but still has put the flow of oil through the Dakota Access Pipeline in doubt because of exactly this law, NEPA, that we were talking about, the idea that the federal government didn't do a sufficient review of it. You've got a pipeline on the East Coast, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which actually the sponsors of it just gave up because there had been such controversy and such such resistance from whether it's kind of rural Appalachia or, again, African-American activists up and down uh, the pipeline's route. Hmm. And you have a question of pebble mine in Alaska, which would be one of the largest gold and copper mines in the world. The Trump administration is trying again to get key approval done before the end of this year. And you have widespread opposition to this right where it is because it is the home to the world's largest sockeye salmon fishery and is an Alaska native stronghold where these folks have been fishing for millennia and are very resistant to the idea of a mine that could pollute the waters of Bristol Bay. Hmm. So if these efforts to roll back some of these environmental protections are part of the legacy of, of Trump's first term, what is Joe Biden saying about the environment? It's hard to imagine a stronger contrast between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in this presidential election. Joe Biden just unveiled a very ambitious climate plan with a price tag of roughly $2 trillion that would revamp the country's infrastructure. It would focus on investing a huge amount of money in clean energy and solar and wind and renewables. It would improve energy efficiency. It really is totally emphasizing the need to reduce carbon emissions as opposed to the promotion of fossil fuels that we've seen under President Trump. 
So then what is at stake if Trump does win the election in November? We're really at a pivotal point. As the Trump administration has pushed aggressively to unwind these longstanding environmental protections, they've made some headway, but a lot of it has been tied up in litigation and kind of the regulatory process. And so a second term for President Trump will really determine once and for all whether these policies are going to fall by the wayside. And alternatively, If Joe Biden follows through on what he says he's going to do, including having a carbon-free power sector by 2035 and, you know, basically putting the U.S. on a path where it would be carbon neutral by mid-century, what we're talking about is a very significant shift in the way Americans use and generate energy and how they treat the environment. And so we're at a crossroads. And what happens in this election will certainly have an extraordinary impact on which path we take going forward. Juliet Alprin writes about energy policy and the environment for The Post. One more thing about a potential problem in the vaccine supply chain. So as scientists are scrambling to create a vaccine in laboratories and universities and drug companies around the world, there's a whole other parallel effort going on to create enough glass vials, literally, and syringes to inoculate billions of people around the planet. The general public may not be focused on that, but governments and glass manufacturers and syringe companies are really recognizing the potential dangers of running short. So they are ramping up in a big way to create enough supply. I'm Chris Rowland, and I'm a business of healthcare reporter at The Washington Post. Already, you know, the world consumes 10 to 15 billion glass vials a year for regular pharmaceuticals and vaccines. And the experts are saying that they need to ramp that up by about 10%, 5 to 10% really is needed. So you're talking about 1 to 2 billion new vaccine vials that need to be produced in very short order. So the experts are telling me that this indeed is possible, but they need to have all the orders and have everybody kind of lined up now and also to ramp up the manufacturing capacity. They need to increase the factory capacity to actually pump out enough of these vials. Uh, one of the advantages is that not all of the you know 11 billion doses that are going to be needed to inoculate the entire you know 70% of the planet are going to be available all at once. This is something that's going to happen over a two-year period. So the manufacturers that I talked to said it is possible that they will be able to meet this demand you know over time. But even with that advantage, there are a few things that could create a bottleneck. Hoarding, for one, could really be a problem. If a lot of big drug companies or governments decide that they are going to try to lock down huge amounts of supply in preparation and they order them from the big glass manufacturers, 
and make it so that there's not enough to be distributed where it's needed, that could be a big problem. The glass manufacturers, interestingly, are saying that they are trying to work together to avoid that kind of scenario. And in fact, they are telling their customers, look, be patient. We will have enough supply. You don't need to order stockpile too many in advance right now. I mean, there is precedent for supply disruptions and problems. I mean, we've had shortages of influenza vaccine in the past. Uh, just in the last year or two, there's been shortages of shingles vaccine. There are times when sufficient amounts of vaccine that need to be delivered through cold storage are hard to get to places like in developing world where enough refrigeration is not adequate. So there's many problems that could come up unexpectedly and you know foil these best efforts. But right now, people are feeling fairly confident that they're going to be able to meet the demand with an extraordinary amount of new money spending and also effort to ramp up supply. Chris Rowland covers the business of healthcare for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you want more great audio, you should check out another podcast at The Post, All Told. They have a new episode out today, following along with a high school teacher trying his best to get his kids through an AP test in the middle of a pandemic. He supports the union, he respects their concerns, but he kind of blows it off because he just feels like he has to do what he has to do. For teaching, this is like our, our World War II. We'll have a link to that episode in our show notes at postreports.com. That's also where you can find a link to our audience survey, which is open for a few more days. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.